I'm Gwen Tompkins, and this is Latitudes. Today we'll talk about energy sources that have nothing to do with oil. From that lucky old sun... Every square meter of Saudi Arabia is receiving enormous amounts of solar energy. So you could lay those panels out in the empty quarter and you wouldn't be discomfitting anybody. To flammable, yes, flammable fruit. To old-fashioned rock and roll. Let me lie with you a while And hope this dream will carry over Alternative energy advocate Juan Cole and South African musician Johnny Clegg are coming up. Comets and clouds and red, red rain Filling up my sky above this dark empty plain We're harnessing energy this week on Latitudes, just after the news. This is Latitudes, a co-production of the Global News Partnership, WAMU 88.5, in Washington, D.C., and North Carolina Public Radio, WUNC. I'm Gwen Tompkins. On Latitudes this week, we're looking at pure energy, power that doesn't come from oil. More and more, people around the world are inspired to tune in and turn on to alternative energy sources. They're reaching for the sun, for unexpected bounties on Earth, and more often than not, for each other to power the planet. And speaking of people power, a newly found creative energy is currently spilling over the Middle East, where social and political revolutions appear to be happening simultaneously. In a speech in late September, King Abdullah of Saudi Arabia announced that women will have the right to vote and run in municipal elections, beginning in the year 2015. Women will also be named to the Shura Council, which advises the king. Political power for women represents a historic turning point for Saudi Arabia, a nation that still requires women to seek permission from men to drive, to seek higher education, or to keep their children in the event of divorce. Hatun Al-Fasi teaches women's history at King Saud University in Riyadh. She joins us from Doha. Thanks for being with us. Uh, you're welcome, Gwen. Now, can you give us an understanding of what suffrage, women's suffrage, you know, the right to vote, means for women in modern Saudi Arabia? Uh, you know, women in Saudi Arabia do not have the right in public life whatsoever. Uh, we are actually deprived from most of the rights that uh, acknowledge us or recognize us as citizens, uh, political rights or political participation was always uh, to us uh, symbolically uh, means to us that we are actually part of this society, part of this country. Are you saying that today or at least in 2015 when you cast your vote that you will feel more like a Saudi citizen? Yes, 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 definitely. Um, uh, the significance of uh, of, the, of, the, uh, of these two decisions are, uh, is actually that we are citizens at last. But there's something true also in the fact that even without formal power, women and, and other disenfranchised groups um, historically have also had a sort of informal power in influencing the futures of their families, their communities, despite the law. I, I don't want to go into the traditional uh, rules that uh, anybody or any society would have, charity and family life and so on. These are something that, things that are uh, very, very uh, they are expected. 
but in um, any public space, women are, uh, they feel that they are uh, unwanted. In, um, unwanted? Unwanted, yes, unwanted. That uh, It's better that their sphere should be only the house. So uh, this is just uh, well, one, one example of uh, how women feel really that they are not not fully part of this uh, of, of this country if they are not part of any decision in the country they are not in the ministerial cabinet for example no, there are no ministries there no ambassadors uh, no heads of uh, universities except if it is a women's university uh, w- women are actually just not in the position of deciding for anything, uh, not education, not health, not social affairs, not, uh, uh, not religion, uh, just nothing. Uh, we are just uh, uh, there to obey orders. And so where do, you, where do you see all of that energy that stems from frustration among women in Saudi Arabia? How do you see that energy channeled, you know, day to day? channeled into shopping, shopping, because you have only the, the only venue where, where women can go to, shopping malls, uh, restaurants where they can just eat, and education. But it's a big struggle. It's three, it, to, 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 to find and to meet a successful woman in Saudi Arabia is very remarkable, because with all the struggles that we go through and have her and see her succeed in any uh, domain, uh, she must uh, have worked double hard or maybe triple hard the man to reach that. Hatun Al-Fasi is a women's rights activist in Saudi Arabia. She also teaches women's history at Saud University and joined us from Doha. Thanks so much for joining us. We really appreciate it. You're welcome. A university in India is creating an army of women to bring power to areas of the world that currently lack electricity. One and a half billion people are off the grid. That's a fourth of the world's population. So the Barefoot College in India is training women from rural Africa and Asia to become solar engineers. Sunita Thakur filed this story from college headquarters in Talonia. Twenty women sit across a long table from each other. An instructor helps them memorize the color codes of the wires that make up a solar circuit. The women, all dressed in the styles of their African countries, are a month into a six-month solar engineering course. They've already built up quite an English vocabulary. This one is the transformer. This one is the washer, and this one is the the, 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 the screw. This one is the... There are no textbooks here, since many of the students are illiterate. But each one has been given her own box of hardware on which to learn. After seeing some 50 to 60 pieces that make up the solar circuit, some of the women look rather daunted. 
but trainer Megan Gumward is here to help. Gumward is the barefoot solar engineer for her nearby village. Since this program expanded to include women from Africa and other parts of the world, some of these Indian women became trainers for the new recruits. It was very difficult. I remember my own training and how tough it was. I'm not very educated, and I'd say to myself, this is the work of engineers, not fourth-class people like me. But slowly, I learned. These people get frightened too. I can see that, so I tell them it takes time. It'll come slowly. By the end of the course, it's expected that these women will be experts on how to build solar lanterns from scratch and carry out day-to-day repairs in their home villages, where there's no electricity and where people might spend a lot of money on lamp fuel, such as kerosene or paraffin. Student Phoebe Bele comes from a small village in Kenya. Yes, the training is very effective. It's effective because uh, when we go back to our area, our country, we'll make our environment to shine with lights. The Barefoot College collaborates with local organizations to help place solar engineers in villages. The college, which gets money from the Indian government and the UN, pays for the training and travel. The local organization pays for the solar lanterns. In return, every village must select one woman to send to the solar training and must contribute $3 to $10 per family as her monthly wages when she returns. These contributions are tiny in comparison to what people would otherwise spend in fuel, candles or flashlight batteries. They don't know the name of the part. They don't know how and why it works like that. But they do know that this part fits in here. The project is the brainchild of Bunker Roy, the founder and director of Barefoot College. The solar unit consists of a charge controller and an inverter, which is a very, very sophisticated device which if you ask a solar engineer, they'll say it is technically impossible to fabricate it in a village. But this woman, illiterate grandmother, can fabricate charge control and inverter in the village itself, which is an absolute remarkable, awesome thing to do. A few miles away from the college in the village of Harmada, 48-year-old Gulab Devi sweeps clean her recently whitewashed brick house. The grandmother is one of 40 women now working as barefoot solar engineers throughout India. After house cleaning, she sits down at a table and chats with her son while turning her attention to her paid work. She takes apart three solar lanterns that need repair, checking for burnt wires and tightening nuts and screws that might not be making proper contact. People in the village, the ones who call us when there's a problem, are still surprised the first time they see us. They say, what will she, an uneducated woman, know about these things? But in the end, my work speaks for itself. Now seeing that many of us women have become self-confident enough to start this work, the numbers keep growing. According to the director, Bunker Roy, most of the women who become solar engineers develop a newfound confidence. She's much more than a solar engineer by the time she goes back to a community. That's how the change agents actually start working in the village level. Back at the Barefoot College, the Indian and African women get around the lack of a common language by using hand gestures and body language to communicate. But they do have a common pride at having done something pioneering. 
For instance, 40-year-old Francesca Mocchi from Cameroon is well aware of the responsibility she carries for her community. My coming here was not only for my own sake, it was for the sake of the whole village. The, the people in the village will have difference because if the village is electrified, even at night children can read. So the village will also profit from me. And Moki, who's a grandmother, seems to be enjoying that responsibility. It is a pride for my children and my family to see that their mother has gone abroad for studies. I know my children are going to school and I am also going to school because this is a school. <laughs> Sunita Takur reporting from Talonia, India. I'm Jorge Derpik in La Paz, Bolivia, and you're listening to Latitudes. Coming up on Latitudes, we look at some energy options beyond oil. When I was a kid, yeah, when I see forest burning and when everything seems to have been burned down, you still see clumps of fire and uh, sometimes we go near it and we saw small trees burning and we notice the fruits are still burning. Stay with us. Latitudes. I'm Gwen Tompkins. It's nearly impossible to argue against the advantages of solar energy. After all, there's only so much oil and coal and natural gas to be found on Earth. But the sun has staying power. When the sun disappears for good, well, let's face it, humankind will have bigger problems on its hands than worrying about $4 a gallon gas at the pump. And yet, the cost of massive solar energy projects has been a stumbling block to investors. So perhaps it should come as no surprise that some of the most recent advocates of solar energy are among the world's wealthiest. Saudi Arabia says it hopes to become a major world exporter of solar power. Juan Cole is a MIDI scholar and renewable energy advocate. He joins us from the University of Michigan in Ann Arbor. Thanks for being with us. Thanks for having me. Now, let me ask you, what are Saudi Arabia's ambitions for solar power? Well, the ambitions are vast. Uh, I have to say that so far uh, it's mainly talk. Well, what can you tell us about Saudi Arabia's leadership in terms of its views on solar energy? Is the leadership united on this? I mean, this is an idea that very much sounds like Detroit investing in bicycles. Right. Well, it's it's not as paradoxical as it may sound because the impetus for developing other forms of energy in Saudi Arabia has to do with the desirability of selling the petroleum outside the country. One of the problems petroleum exporters face is that over time, often as their societies develop, they begin using more and more petroleum themselves. Saudi Arabia is in the position right now of producing, let's say, nine, nine and a half million barrels a day of petroleum. It uses up nearly a million itself, so it has a lot to export. But as its population is growing, as its economy is becoming more sophisticated, as more and more people are driving, the likelihood is that it will start using up more and more of its own petroleum. And it will have less and less to export, which will make it a much poorer country. I had read some reports mentioning that the Saudis were interested in developing some of their solar complex, I suppose, in a place called the Empty Quarter. Have you ever been there? Can you describe it to us? 
you know, it's called the empty quarter because nobody lives there. So it's not like you would go to visit. It's it's among the driest and most inhospitable places on Earth. And, you know, one of the problems with solar is that uh, solar panels are large and need a lot of surface area. Every square meter of Saudi Arabia is receiving enormous amounts of solar energy. So you could lay those panels out in the empty quarter and it wouldn't be discomfitting anybody. Exactly. And and I would imagine that you're producing all of this energy for export, right? You're you're actually hoping, if you're going to uh, move forward with a project like that, you're hoping to export maybe to Europe? Western Europe in particular is very energy poor. Uh, doesn't have much petroleum, natural gas, uh, and so has to import if you could feed in uh, the solar power from uh, the Sahara, or uh, it's also envisaged from places like Saudi Arabia and Egypt into Europe, then and, and you you know built a smart smart grid that would allow the transfer of the electricity uh, over wires, that uh, you could resolve the coming energy crisis in the industrial world uh, in this way, because you know the the demand for energy is increasing rapidly. And uh, it's n- not possible to uh, supply the, the d- demand through hydrocarbons. It's, 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 uh, there's going to be a, a big crunch in the future. We can imagine how barrels of oil get into a, a tanker and they move to, you know, to the Americas or someplace else or, or Western Europe or around the world. But in terms of uh, solar energy, you mentioned panels that transmit energy via wires uh, abroad from perhaps the Sahara or perhaps from Sa- Saudi Arabia. How does that work? Well, you would simply articulate the electricity provision over wires uh, into the European grid. I mean, wires, the, the world is very wired. Uh, the, the possibility of setting up these uh, smart electricity grids uh, is there. You mentioned in your blog an eco-theme park in Jordan, and uh, most specifically an event in which the King of Jordan, King Abdullah, actually visited this eco-theme park. Is this sort of a light royal way of trying to win attention to looking at the future as something that could be positive and hopefully pollution-free? Well, yeah, the King of Jordan is a Trekkie. King Abdullah the, uh, the Second is a Trekkie. You mean Star Trek, Star right? Star Trek. Okay. He is a big fan. So the Jordanian government has plans to put a tourist complex and shopping complex at the southern Gulf port of Aqaba. There'll be a Star Trek theme park, and ah. it's going to be, according to the king, uh, they would like it to be solar-powered. Ah, I see. So the king has not exactly appeared at this eco-theme park because it's, it hasn't no, been it's, built it's, yet. It's on, it's on the books. You begin to see these glimmers of, of real interest in the, the royal courts of the UAE, Jordan, Saudi Arabia, in alternative energy and in renewables with a sense that that's really where the future lies. Everybody understands that the day of hydrocarbons is beginning to pass. Going solar could be a way for the Middle East to extend its influence in energy markets and the the wealth that it derives from that and the the subsequent power that it has in world affairs into the 21st century because, you know, the hydrocarbons will run out, but uh, solar will be with us for a very long time. Well, thank you, Professor Cole. It's really been a pleasure talking to you. Well, likewise. Thank you. Juan Cole is a Mideast scholar and renewable energy advocate speaking from Ann Arbor, Michigan. His blog is called Informed Comment. Thanks again for being with us. Thanks for having me. And when the well runs dry, you dig a new well somewhere else. 
oil men rarely speak glowingly of life after the wells run dry. But have you met T. Boone Pickens? We will solve our problem because we have the resources to do it. We're going to use wind, we're going to use solar, and we're going to use natural gas for transportation fuel. Now, what's it going to get us? Now, fast forward. Let's go fast forward. Just very quickly, I feel like right now, I and the rest of my audience would follow you out the building. <laughs> That's The Daily Show's John Stewart speaking to oil magnate T. Boone Pickens. Philippines, fuel for cooking and heating can be expensive and sometimes hard to come by. But there may be an alternative at hand. Oil from a highly flammable native fruit called the petroleum nut. Tina Pamentuan reports from the Cordillera Mountains. During a heavy afternoon rain in the mountain town of Zagata, Alice Goedin is busy shooing flies from the glass display cases in her bakery. Guidin has lived in Sakata all her life. She opened this shop a few months ago, where she sells sweet rolls filled with pineapple and other local produce. She's finding it hard to keep up with fuel costs. An empty tank of liquid petroleum gas sits in the corner. It costs 3,250 Filipino pesos. That's 77 American dollars. A tank this size lasts just seven days. Besides that, she can't always get the fuel when she needs it. Actually, if typhoon comes and uh, there will be a problem on the road, we really have a shortage. Has that happened before to you? Yes. <laughs> I really experienced like that. <laughs> That's why we, we will remedy, we will use wood for on cooking. It's hard. <laughs> Enter Michael Bengwayan. He's an expert in environmental resource management and he started making fuel out of a local fruit called the petroleum nut. Bengwayan spent his childhood in the Cordillera Mountains. He has vivid memories of the petroleum nut tree and the way its fleshy orange fruits actually ignited in the dry season. When I was a kid, yeah, when I see forests burning and when everything seems to have been burned down, you still see clumps of fire and uh, sometimes we go near it and we saw small trees burning and we noticed the fruits are still burning. So that really got my attention when I was a small boy. The petroleum nut tree is one of only two known plants in the world that produces short-chain alkanes. These are the chemicals that fossil fuels, like gasoline and diesel, are made from. Bing Wayne studies the tree on his small farm, 91 miles northeast of Sagada. He's researching how to efficiently extract the oil from the fruit. He's also made a custom lantern for the oil out of old glass jars. He occasionally mixes the oil with gasoline to power his World War II-era Jeep. And since the petroleum nut is actually a fruit, he's tried eating it, too. But you, you can't eat these. No, I tried. I, in fact, I tried chewing one, and uh, it, like, uh, it smells like gas. The fruit's real potential, Bengwayan says, is not on the kitchen table, but elsewhere in the home as fuel. He estimates a family of five can get its year-round cooking fuel from just three to five trees. So he's teaching others how to plant the tree and harvest its oil. 
Benguayan also takes his workshops on the road. Last year, like a modern-day Johnny Appleseed, he braved a twisty three-hour drive through the mountains to reach the town of Sagada. Richard Yodong, a local official, was impressed with how easily the oil from the petroleum nut burned. On the spot, he proposed an idea. The idea is we will be establishing a municipal nursery. We will uh, generate as many seedlings and then distribute it to the uh, people in the barangays, in the barrios, for them to plant. That sounds good to Alice Gawedin, the bakery owner in Sagada. There could be hazards to keeping highly flammable trees in residential areas. Still, Gawedin wants to plant them in her yard. It's good if uh, they will make it alone so that all of us can plant, can benefit us all. Meanwhile, Bingwain is partnering with scientists at Oak Ridge National Laboratory and the University of Tennessee in Knoxville. They want to learn more about the oil's burning characteristics and the tree's genetics. And he'll keep spreading the word about how the oil can help rural households in his own country. At the end of a training session, he asks his students to start a fan club of sorts. They elect a board and draft a mission statement. To develop, establish, and manage the captured gifts that nature in petroleum nuts offer to our very own Filipino people. Each student leaves with a six-week-old sprouted seedling in a plastic pot. The seedlings are rare, but Michael Benguayan is happy to give them away as long as they'll be put into the earth. For Latitudes, this is Tina Pamantuan. Reporting for this story was made possible by a fellowship from the International Center for Journalists. It takes an enormous amount of energy to pack up a life, cross international borders, and find work someplace else. But more than two million Burmese nationals have done just that, making their way from their homeland, which is now called Myanmar, to neighboring Thailand. Many Burmese nationals work dangerous jobs in Thailand's fishing industry. Reporter Jesse Hardman met two such fishermen and has this report. Please note that the names of the fishermen have been changed to protect their identities. In Mahachai, a port city in southern Thailand, 30-year-old Kun Min is laying tiles in a new apartment complex. He and his co-workers are listening to Burmese music, eating Burmese snacks, and talking in Burmese to each other. There are around 120,000 Burmese in Mahachai, which is why the town is nicknamed Little Burma. Kunmin is happy to be back somewhere that feels even a little like home. He says about a year ago, he was working in construction. One day, without any warning, a labor broker who'd helped him find work told him he'd been sold to a fishing boat captain. The price was $600, money he had to work off. There was nothing I could do. I had no visa, no passport, no working papers. If I tried to run, the ship's captain or broker would just catch me again. Trafficking Burmese laborers is big business in Thailand. Recruiters find would-be workers in Burma or migrant communities inside Thailand, and they get them into Thai industries. Along the way, the Burmese accumulate debt and have to pay it back in a kind of indentured servitude. It took a year, but Kunmint finally paid off his debt and made it back into construction. While Kunmint swears he'll never get on another boat again, Plenty of other Burmese migrants jump at the chance. A fishing boat pays up to $230 a month, several times what a garment factory offers. In Burma, that's a fortune. 
and that's what draws young Burmese men, like Go Win. At 16, he snuck out of his mother's home and headed east. We swam in the ocean to get to Thailand. When we got there, I was arrested by the border police. They put me in jail for 10 days, then they let me go. Now his universe is a 70-foot fishing boat anchored on the Mekong River, an hour south of Bangkok. The one room on the boat is more like a shelf, so small that he and his co-workers take turns getting the few hours of sleep allowed. But it's being out at sea where the danger lies. One time, one of my shipmates cut his hand working, and the captain didn't help him get to the hospital. It got infected, spread all over his body, and the boy died, just like that. They threw his body into the sea. Monitoring ships at sea is difficult. And at the National Thai Fishery Association, Vichan City Chaikawat admits there are some bad apples in the industry. But he says some complaints by labor activists and workers are unjustified. He says once ships are out at sea, normal rules can't always apply. If you take two days' journey to the fishing ground, they have to take two more days to come back. And if something wrong, the crew does say, hey, I'm not happy with this work, I don't want to work, I want to come back. The boat cannot come back right away. For its part, the Thai government is trying to register Burmese migrants as official guest workers. Being a legal migrant can mean better pay and better protection from abuse by police and employers. So far, hundreds of thousands of Burmese have registered, but labor activists say that's just a Band-Aid because the root of the problem, Burma's poverty and turmoil, hasn't changed. Seven years after he ran away from home, Gowin has survived malaria and captains who didn't pay. He lives in hope for a future back home when grown men like him won't have to leave. I would be happy if I was the last Burmese boy to ever go to the ships. Gowin and his crewmen look out at the Mekong River. When their Thai captain returns, they'll be setting out again. For now, they laze about in the hot afternoon sun dreaming about the houses they want to build one day back in Burma. But with each long, dangerous day at sea, the Burmese horizon seems further and further away. For Latitudes, I'm Jesse Hardman in Mahachai, Thailand. Support for Jesse Hartman's reporting comes from the Pulitzer Center on Crisis Reporting. You can find them online at pulitzercenter.org. In the search for alternative energy sources, let's not overlook the potential of body heat. Consider the heat humans generate in public, hurrying to work or shopping or eating lunch. The Swedish company that runs Stockholm's central rail station says that body heat is a precious energy resource. About 250,000 commuters use the rail station daily. And the company is hoping to harness all that body heat that commuters generate to warm a new office building across the street. How will they do it? Well, the railway's ventilation system would somehow capture the body heat from the commuters and use it to make water hot. The hot water is then pumped into the heating system of the building across the street, and presto changeo, the offices are toasty warm. Could body heat be the next big thing in renewable energy? Talk about people power. Stay tuned. 
Electricity. AC. Electricity. DC. A wonderful kind of energy. For more on the future of energy, check out the Christian Science Monitor's in-depth look at life after oil. It's called Future Focus, Energy, and it's online at csmonitor.com. At its best, rock and roll is pure energy. We talk with South African musician Johnny Clegg about his life, his music, and his 58-year-old knees later on Latitudes. Stay with us. This is Latitudes. I'm Gwen Tompkins. Filmmakers harness energy seemingly out of thin air, from light and shadow and sound, and from happy accidents of nature and design. But once a movie is finished, it takes another kind of energy to get people to see it. Movies need word of mouth, buzz, heat, or they never get anywhere. Recently, a small independent movie from Malaysia called Bunohan appeared at the prestigious Toronto International Film Festival. The movie's writer and director, Dane Syed, isn't exactly famous. Bunohan boasts no movie stars, it doesn't have a Hollywood ending, and it comes from a nation that's not particularly famous for its film industry. So how did little Bunohan make its way to the big leagues? Well, as it turns out, first-class marketing can get any picture seen around the world. And who knows, maybe to a theater near you. Producers are touting Bunohan as King Lear meets Malaysian kickboxing. Instead of three daughters, the father in this movie has three sons. There's no word yet on how poor Cordelia fares, but the previews, which feature people elbowing and kicking the daylights out of each other, do not bode well. An article in Variety suggests that Bunohan is ripe for a Hollywood remake. After all, Martin Scorsese's film The Departed was a remake of a popular Hong Kong picture called Infernal Affairs. We asked Bunohan producer Tim Kwok in Los Angeles how he would feel about a Hollywood treatment of his film. Perhaps Christopher Plummer as King Lear and Matt Damon, Brad Pitt, and Mark Wahlberg as his three sons. For me, I will be open to different ethnicities. I think it doesn't necessarily have to be, you know, the, the, the traditional... A bunch of white guys. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> it could be a group of African-American brothers or... Latino brothers, and, you know, I think it'll be interesting. Um, we're really excited if there is talk of remakes and interest of remakes. Um, but, you know, at the same time, we're not necessarily um, banking on it. Whatever happens, there should be a medic on set. The form of martial arts featured in Bunohan is called tamoy, and in tamoy, punching with your fists is considered too soft. That may be one of the reasons why the picture is called Bunohan, which in Malaysia means murder. In the air of those gone before 
a sentence that Johnny Clegg helped make sound about as dull as an unsalted potato chip. In South Africa, white musicians and black musicians perform together on stage. Ho-hum, right? For much of his career, Mr. Clegg and his Zulu compatriots were considered criminals for doing just that. Today, in a post-apartheid South Africa, he's considered a treasure. Mr. Clegg, along with so many other South Africans, helped make a nation come to its senses while tapping its feet. Here's a clip from 1999 of Johnny Clegg performing in France. is called Asimbonanga, and behind Mr. Clegg is perhaps the best backup dancer in history, then South African President Nelson Mandela. Thank God we were in the last part of the song because I think I would have forgotten my lyrics. I got such a shock. This is the last thing I, I would ever have expected to happen, and it is the pinnacle of my songwriting career. It was fantastic. Johnny Clegg has been on tour promoting his latest CD titled Human. He joins us from his home in Santon, a suburb outside Johannesburg. Welcome. Yeah, thanks for the invite. Now, let me ask you a, a question about Asim Bonanga, which is a beautiful song. The, the word Asim Bonanga, is that a Zulu word? Yes, it's a Zulu word. The song is really a statement about my generation, the people I grew up with in the late 60s, 70s and 80s. We were the generation who never saw a visual picture of Nelson Mandela. We cannot see where he's being held in jail in Robben Island. If you had a photograph of Mandela, uh, you could get up to five years jail. I wrote the song in the middle of the, uh, the height of the state of emergency in 1986. The South African Defence Force was sent into townships. Uh, ostensibly, you had a white conscript army which was being used to put down rebellions in the township. So South Africans were fighting South Africans in a way. It was a very desperate time. And I wrote that song in a, in a state of, of depression, actually, saying, you know, we haven't seen him. We don't know what he looks like. But we know that when he crosses the water from Robben Island to the mainland, that we will have a chance. We'll have a chance to put things right. You've been described as an anthropologist, an activist, and a singer. Now, which order should those titles come in? I mean, what in your mind comes first in terms of your own identity? I think that generally, you know, I've been a cultural activist. Uh, during the apartheid period, cultural segregation was a, was a law. It was a very, very heavily enforced. And so the idea of exploring other people's cultures and identities was kind of forbidden. And... Uh, I took that up. I said, well, I would like to know more about the Zulu. I like the music. I like the dancing. I like the culture. And I'd like to understand how I could become an African. Is there anything in this culture that could offer me a base from which to understand my African uh, identity? And can I, if I don't have one, can I construct one? Can I make one up for myself? How did this fight against apartheid become your fight? Um, you were reportedly born in England, and neither of your parents is South African. 
Well, my mom was born in Zimbabwe, and I grew up in Zimbabwe. So uh, my mom divorced my dad uh, when I was six months old, and then she married a South African crime reporter, and we moved to Johannesburg. And two years later, we moved to Lusaka in Zambia, where I schooled in a non-racial school uh, for two years, and then we returned to South Africa. So I had a very checkered upbringing. I was never really a, a political activist uh, um, in the beginning. I was just really following my heart, following music. I got into a lot of trouble. I, in, in fact, apartheid found me. I wasn't looking to make a statement because, you know, when I was 14, I didn't have a very well-developed political consciousness. And so I went into this world, the hidden world of the Zulu migrant laborer and found this incredible, rich culture that was being preserved in, in, the, in the hostels around the edge of Johannesburg. These were worker hostels, migrants. How much time did you spend um, in and out of these hostels? Every weekend, I was, I was a fanatic. You said that apartheid found you. Can you explain that to us? Well, I was, I was first arrested by the police when I was 15 inside a hostel. The hostels were, were, were off-limits to white people. Um, the hostel was, uh, held about 3,000 people, and at the gates you had uh, what we called blackjacks. These were municipal police dressed in these black uniforms. So I used to get in by means of the dance team itself. The dance team would come out, 30 or 40 strong, singing traditional songs. Uh, they'd come outside through the main gate, and then I would sneak into the middle of them, and then they would carry me in, and I was very small, so the, the blackjacks couldn't see me. And that's how I used to get in and out of the hostels, was basically through the dance team. And then while we were dancing, the police raided, and I was inside the hostel, inside the room with the dancers. And the immediate reaction of the police was that I, I'd been kidnapped. <laughs> dancing against your will, so to speak. Yeah, I was, I was there against my will. So they said to me, what, what are you doing here? Uh, I was 15. I said, no, I'm learning how to do Zulu dancing. And they said, no, you don't have to say that anymore. You're safe. You know, we've got you. Uh, what what's happened to you? I said no, nothing. I'm 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 dancing here. Uh, so they took me to my mom, and uh, she opened the door, and I was standing between these two very tall policemen, and they said, "Madam, we've caught you, or we've arrested your son inside the hostel, and when he's 18, uh, we will arrest him and put him in jail." And what did your mom say? So my mom was quite shocked. We sat in the in the thing. She said, "What are you doing? You get into such trouble and what 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 what?" So I said, "No, you know, I'm 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 actually just I'm learning to dance. I want to dance." You know, my mom was a cabaret singer. She was a jazz singer. I said, "You want to be Ella Fitzgerald, don't you?" And she said, "Yes." I said, "Well, I want to be a Zulu dancer. Do you get it?" So she said, "Yeah, I do get it, but you can't break the law." So I said, "Look, can I bring the dance leader?" So I did. His name was uh, Zwane, and I brought him and, and two of his um, captains, and they sat in the lounge with my mom. And in broken English, they explained what was going on. And then my mom said, listen, you know, you, you must just be careful. Uh, I'm happy you can carry on. And I think that was a very important moment in my life.
about your your latest CD, which is titled Human. I love that title because it, it, it could mean anything, good, bad, or indifferent. Um, why did that appeal to you? Why did you choose to call the, call the CD Human? Um, looking at what I'd written, uh, the songs that I put together for the album, some of the songs were, were, were actually um, dealing with a lot of different things that, that make human beings quite interesting. It's only when we are pitted against something that, that we, we start to work out who we are and what we are. And and so my idea was that human is this incredible collection of competing contradictory energies that, that humans feel in, in different situations. And all the paradoxes that we have to deal with in life and that this can make us beautiful but it can also make us ugly. Let's listen to the provocatively titled song. This is the first song from the CD, and it's titled Love in the Time of Gaza. The sky is black with gunships, but I'm dreaming of a girl in her eyes, love and friendship. But will she understand my world? So, Mr. Clegg, love in the time of Gaza, is this metaphor, is this personal, or both? It came out of me watching the devastation that was um, inflicted on Gaza in December 2008 and January 2009, watching um, all the various news channels uh, and seeing, um, you know, just trying to understand, you know, what, what, what had actually happened there. And in the corner, um, just at the edge of the screen there was this young Palestinian boy about 17 years old and he was looking at this girl and he was talking quite shyly to her because he didn't give a damn about anything that was going on around him he was just interested in the girl it was such a powerful moment it, it, I took it away with me it, it stayed with me for months well let's let's listen to another song and this is a song again from your CD Human it's called Asilazi what does that word mean? Asalazi. It means we don't know when the day will come. Um, this song is really about uh, the fact that we have this very, very difficult economic transformation that's, that has to take place. Uh, you speak to people in the townships and they say, you know, we, we've got all the political freedom we want. What we want is economic freedom. We want to be able to, you know, have a job, earn money, further ourselves in the economy, find a position in the economy where we can operate. Let me ask you this. This is the last song that I wanted to uh, wanted to us to touch on um, before we say goodbye. But um, is it Magumedi? Magumete, yes, yes. Magumete, okay. This is a Zulu word, and what does that word mean? It means mother gumete. Gumete is a surname, a Zulu surname. <laughs> This is a Baka, traditional Baka song that I learned when I was 16. You know, on the CD, you, you've, got, you've got a lot of songs talking about dance because dance shaped my life. This is a particular beautiful Baka traditional dance song. Every album from now on, I'm going to put one of these traditional songs on 
because they no longer exist and access to them is very, very um, difficult. It's wonderful. It really is. And may I ask you, what, what is your age? Are you, are you comfortable telling us? I'm 58 years old. Ooh, okay, thank you. Now, um, you know, singer-songwriter Nick Lowe, I don't know if you're familiar with him, but he wrote that beautiful song, What's So Funny About Peace, Love, and Understanding. Um, and he, he, he once said that uh, as a young man, you know, a, mus- a, a rock and roll musician pretty much wants to rock. But when you grow older, you kind of just want to roll. So what do you want to do, Mr. Clegg? Are you, well, you want to rock or you want to roll? <laughs> um, you know, I do both, actually, because, you know, I, I'm still very fit and I, I dance with the traditional dance team on the, on the weekends. I'm the oldest senior member of a dance team that I joined in 1978. Uh, so on stage and that, uh, you know, I have a very live and very physical performance still. Um, I don't know how long my knees are going to last, but we'll we'll see. That's a lot of energy. That's a lot of energy. (laughs) Thank you so very much. Mr. Johnny Clegg has just spoken with us from his home in Santon, outside Johannesburg, South Africa. Thanks very much for joining us. Thank you very much. to the end of our show this week. Check out our website, latitudesradio.org. There are photos, slideshows, and more music for your listening pleasure. And there's a place for you to tell us what you think and share your ideas. Hope you'll stop by. Latitudes is produced with the support of FHI 360, committed to improving lives in lasting ways in the U.S. and around the world. Support also comes from the Park Foundation and the Christian Science Monitor, delivering an in-depth look at life after oil in its special series, Future Focus, Energy, online at csmonitor.com slash specials. The program is produced by the Global News Partnership, WAMU 88.5 in Washington, D.C., and North Carolina Public Radio, WUNC. Our production team includes Beverly Abel, Julie Drizzen, Emily Eagle, Lita Hartman, Jenny Schmidt, Sue Shepard, and Andrea Wenzel. Thomas Walsh and Keith Weston are our audio engineers. Our theme music is composed by the Plush Interiors. I'm Gwen Tompkins.